This morning, turn to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 21. Right now, we're in the middle of a special series called The Essentials, looking at the foundation of our faith, trying to understand that which is non-negotiable for us and setting a foundation for us to live here in this world. And these next couple of weeks, we're more on a topical messages as we're looking at some difficult topics that are foundational to our life of faith. And so we're doing kind of jumping around at various passages, looking at what the Bible teaches as a whole on a couple of different subjects. So I'd encourage you to open your Bible to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, beginning with the first verse. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to them, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. God, we come before you this morning looking at your word for guidance and understanding. As we look at a difficult passage this morning, we ask, God, that you would give us clear interpretation and clear application for our lives. Capture us this morning, O Lord, with the vision of your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. That's my final answer, and don't ask again. I'm sure that if you're a father, you've said that, or when you were a child at some point, those were the words you did not want to hear, because you knew it was at that moment that you stopped asking. No matter how tricky you had been up to that point, even no matter how tricky you thought you were going to be in the future, when it came across, that is my final answer. You knew there was no time to ask again. In college, we had a professor that was pretty difficult in the standards of the math department and the science department, and he graded on a curve. Let me just tell you how difficult he is. Now, when I share this with you, don't take this as a, this is how smart or dumb I was. But on one physics exam, this is how difficult he was because of how smart I am. Think, I got 4 out of 60 correct on a physics exam. Think, but guess what? That was a C-. minus. Not bad. 4 out of 60 for a C-. minus. He graded on a curve, and he was extremely difficult. And so, whatever happened with this one professor, whenever we finished an exam with this one professor, the campaigning began immediately. Immediately when you walked out of the room, the first thing you said, that's a tough test. That was really hard. And then when you got back to your room, you sent an email immediately. Wow, professor, those were some difficult questions. And then you always ask kind of a follow-up of, 
I'm trying to understand this just a little bit more. The next day at lunch, professor, sit with us, sit with us. Man, that was a hard test yesterday. You see, what the professor did is he graded on a curve, but he kind of had a relational curve. It wasn't exactly scientific in the sense of he would take the top score and then that one kind of set the curve. He was willing to adjust that top score. So depending on how the campaigning went, we knew there was a chance to continually lower that curve. We knew we had until the next time we met in class. Because the next time we met in class, the tests were handed back. And when the tests were handed back, that was the final word. And believe it or not, a couple of times we got tests handed back and there would be a score and that score would be crossed out with another score next to it. The campaigning really worked well in those instances. But the moment the paper came back to you, the final word had been spoken and there was no more campaigning. All of us have heard that final word at different times and at different ways. That final no. Well, there's one ultimate final word that no one speaks against and no one speaks after. Death. Death ultimately has the final say over every human life before the coming of Jesus Christ. Death is a final word. No one gets a second chance to say, well, hold on a second. I'd like to think about that a second. Death has the final word. The question for us this morning is, does death truly have the final word? Does death have the final say? And the good news for us this morning is this. Death is powerful and complete over the mortal, but death does not have the final word. I would argue the problem for the majority of us this morning is this. We're Minnesota sports fans in the way we view life after death. Let me explain that a little bit. You see, the problem with being a Minnesota sports fan is this. You've settled for mediocrity in every sport and in every season for all of life. And so the great problem is this. Mediocrity is such like, it's a little carrot that just holds you forever because this. If they were horrible, at least you could say this. Hey, there's no hope this next season. Or if they weren't mediocre and they were great, you'd at least say, I, I'm all in. I am all in. Season tickets, I'm going to be at every game. I'm going to know everything because we know this is the year. Minnesota sports teams are notorious for what? Maybe making the playoffs, sometimes make the, oh, and then get out right away in the playoffs. Never horrible where they get the number one draft pick. And also, never great where you're like, this is awesome. And so Minnesota sports fan is really wrapped up in mediocrity. And I would argue our problem as followers of Jesus, we've got the same view of life after death as we do as Minnesota sports fans. We've got a picture of mediocrity. What we've got a picture of life after death is basically this. Finally, all evil is gone. And that's, that's good. That's assuring. That's good to know and it gives us a little bit of peace of mind. But it's not quite enough to drive us to say, yes, everlasting life in the kingdom is going to be amazing. Because when we think about everlasting life, what we're thinking about is 
mediocrity, the absence of evil. This morning we're looking to get a picture that takes us from that mediocre sports fan, and I can't believe I'm even going to say this, going from that mediocre sports fan to being a New York Yankees fan. (laughs) Heresy from the pulpit, now that that's out of the way. Captured with a vision that drives us to know that greatness is around the corner and we have confidence that greatness is around the corner. And when we talk about life after death, we have to answer this one question that always comes up and we're not going to spend a lot of time on it this morning because there's not a lot of information. And for some of us, this is difficult because of the closeness of death and the familiarity of death. And that's, that's the question, what happens when we die? Basically, immediately, right after death, what happens? And really, in Scripture, we just get one answer, and that's this, that we are in restful happiness in the present heaven. There's not a lot in Scripture that gives us description of what happens immediately after death. There's about three passages of Scripture that most people take to give us the answer. The first comes in Luke, where Jesus is on the cross, and when Jesus is on the cross next to the thief, And he says to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, if Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise, logically speaking, it's got to mean something that you're in the presence of Christ immediately after your death because Jesus is promising that to this individual. That's one instance. The next instance we find the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul is really struggling because he's being persecuted He's on the verge of death and the Apostle Paul is basically saying, I'm in this struggle of whether I want to depart and be away from the body, if I wanted to depart and be with Christ, or if I want to remain here for fruitful ministry. And the reason that it's such a struggle for the Apostle Paul is because of the promise to be in the presence of the Lord. And that's what we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that we read earlier today, that what was there? It's either to be present in the body or to be absent from the body and in the presence of the Lord. So there's this promise in Scripture that when we are absent from the body, we are present with the Lord. So life after death, where do we go when we immediately die? Scripture teaches us that we go to restful happiness in the present heaven. Now, notice I chose the words here. Try to choose them very carefully to be faithful to Scripture. I put the word present in front of heaven. It's very important to distinguish restful happiness in the present heaven, not restful happiness in heaven or eternal heaven. Because where we go immediately when we die, that's not the eternal heaven where we spend all of eternity. In a sense, and again, this is we're trying to use human words to describe something, in a sense it's kind of like a a holding tank. But not a holding tank in the sense of purgatory. Purgatory doesn't have any foundation in Scripture. There's nothing in Scripture about a time after death when you kind of enter into this place where you can make a decision or go one way or the other. After death, you're either in the presence of Christ or you're not. But this present heaven is where Jesus currently is, but it's not the eternal heaven. And it's important to remember that because our eternal heaven is what we're going to look at here in the rest of the message. But you can take confidence today that when you stand next to the grave of a loved one, when you stand by one who's facing death, one who is in Christ, we can take confidence that at their death, 
They're with Jesus. They're in the presence of the living God, resting. And that's what we hear from Scripture, is that they're resting in Christ. Today we want to look, though, at what's the eternal destination? What is our eternal home? In other words, what does eternal life consist of? We finish the Apostles' Creed with saying, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and life everlasting. Well, let's talk about that. What is life everlasting? That brings us to today's non-negotiable. Everlasting life consists of a resurrected body on a transformed world with a resurrected Jesus. Everlasting life consists of a resurrected body on a transformed world with a resurrected Jesus. This is our hope. This is where we spend eternity. This is what we're yearning for. We're yearning for this resurrected body. What is the resurrected body? We get a good picture of the resurrected body in Jesus. And when we want to talk about the resurrected body, where we should look for answers is the resurrected Jesus. We see that in Philippians chapter 3. And I'm going to kind of go quick here this morning, so you don't need to turn there in your Bibles. But from Philippians chapter 3, we see this morning that it says, the Apostle Paul's writing, that our glorious hope is the coming of Jesus Christ and the transformation of our body to be like His glorious body. To be like Jesus. Not just spiritually, but also physically. We also see it in 1 John chapter 3, that when He appears, we shall be like Him. So we want to get a picture of what life is like in the resurrected body. Look to Jesus. And the first thing we see in Jesus is this. It's not a ghost. In Luke chapter 24, when Jesus appears to his disciples, there's kind of this thought of, is it a ghost? And Jesus just says, I'm not a ghost. A resurrected body is a physical dimension. It's, it's physical creation. And in this physical creation, we see that Jesus eats Jesus sleeps, Jesus talks, Jesus walks. Our eternal life is a brand new body that walks, talks, sleeps, eats. All of these things, we see that in the resurrection of Jesus. That's our hope. And the beauty of it is this, all of those things without the present weaknesses, all of those things without mortality or imperishability, we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when it's talking about the resurrection. It says that the perishable inherit the imperishable. The mortal inherit the immortal. These resurrected bodies are physical, yet they're immortal. They can walk through walls. We see that's from Jesus. It's a whole new physical dimension. But it will be a physical creation. And one of the other reasons that we see this is if we look back to Genesis chapter 1, when God created earth in perfection, what did He create? Physical beings. Physical beings that ate, slept, walked, worked. Yes, yes, I said worked. You're going to work for eternity. And some of you go, oh, I just returned to that Minnesota Twins mediocrity. Eternal life is not going to be sitting on a cloud listening to a piano all day. Eternal life is going to be life in a physical kingdom that's been resurrected with these physical bodies eating, sleeping, working, walking with the resurrected Jesus. It's a physical world with a physical body. And there's lots of questions. You know, my first thing is, so do I have to have the big ears in the new creation? 
And I'm sure that some of us have those types of questions. Could I maybe just get a little bit of an upgrade? Well, the upgrade, the upgrade is going to be immortality and imperishable. Well, there's outside of that, there's a lot of questions. But we're going to have a whole new perspective because we're going to be in the presence of God. A physical, resurrected body. That's what eternal life consists of. And this resurrected body is going to be on a transformed earth. A transformed world. And this is where we kind of get confused because this is so not talked about or this is not sung about. Is that the right way of saying it? This is not sung about. So even the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, gets it wrong just a little bit. Just a little bit. It proclaims great truths, but it doesn't proclaim the whole truth. The whole truth that we're not just whisked away to our home somewhere else, but our home is actually here on a transformed world. And that's what we see in Revelations chapter 21 this morning is that at the end of time, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And the whole point, description is this, is that there's going to be a complete transformation. There's going to be catechismic events that cause it to make it seem like there's complete destruction. But what it really is, is it's a complete transformation. Removing that which is old and bringing something new. You see, Scripture uses this language of, you know, earth will almost dissolve there will be complete destruction to just give us the description of how massive the change is going to be. That that which is corrupt is going to be done away with. There's going to be a brand new heaven, a brand new earth, this transformation of physical creation. I would like you to look with me at one verse if you have your Bible. Acts chapter 3. This is really a critical verse because it summarizes the unity of the Bible. Acts chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Acts chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Please turn there with me. I'd really like you to underline this verse in your Bible. And this is also a good one to memorize. Because this talks to us about the unity of the Scripture and gives us the whole purpose. Acts 3, 20 through 21. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Okay, let's look at verse 21 there. It's describing for us the ascension of Jesus just happened, and it's saying now, heaven must receive Jesus until the time for restoring all things about what the prophets spoke about. So what it's really saying is this, is that after Jesus ascended to heaven, Jesus ascends to the complete presence of the Father, sits at the right hand of the Father, and then, at the choosing of the Father, Jesus is going to return to do what? 21 there. Restore all things. Why? Because that's what the prophets have been speaking about. You see, in the Old Testament, to truly understand the unity of the Bible, you have to understand that the nation of Israel was longing for one thing. They were longing for a time when Israel would basically be in charge of all of creation and that there would be this perfect nation that existed in perfect peace. And if you want to look in Isaiah 60 and 61, you get this picture of that prophecy. It's really a prophecy that's what? Pointing back to Genesis 1 and 2, the perfect creation. So in the whole Old Testament and the New Testament, the point of the Bible is this. 
God created the universe. However, the universe entered into fallen because of sin. And then God sends the nation Israel to bring about the Messiah Jesus, the Messiah Jesus who redeems all things, or in other words, restores all things, and it all ends up back at Genesis chapter 1 and 2, as we read in Revelation 21 and 22. A brand new creation, everything restored. That's why the prophet can say here in Acts chapter 3, hey, Jesus is coming to do what? Restore all things. Jesus is not coming to whisk you away, but rather Jesus is coming to transform your body into a glorious body and to transform this world into a beautiful new society. A beautiful new society where there will be no more pain and no more suffering. Look with me back at Revelation chapter 21. There's a, a phrase in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, that, believe it or not, is actually agreed upon by almost all biblical scholars. In Revelation, if you find something that's agreed upon by all biblical scholars, you must be on to something. Revelation 21, verse 1. Look at the end of verse 1. So he just gave us this vision of the new heaven and the new earth coming, the old earth being transformed, gone away, and it says, and the sea was no more. Well, kind of a weird thing. So you just said the heaven and earth are gone, there's a new heaven and earth, and the sea was no more. Well, isn't the sea part of earth? Well, in the Bible, the sea is imagery for disruption. The sea is imagery for mysterious evil. Whenever you read, see, read about the sea in the Old Testament, it's always engulfing things. Or it's where the beast comes from. It's where the evil comes from. And so, when you see here in Revelation 21 where it says, and the sea was no more, basically it's saying, and there's no more divisions between people. The sea is no more. is basically like saying, hey, there's no more crazy power. There's no more hostile forces. There's no more engagement of evil. The sea is gone. It's this new society that exists with no more division, no more chaos, but rather perfection. Our ultimate hope is a resurrected body in a transformed world because Jesus comes and restores everything to perfection. And it's going to be big events that take place, but in the end, it's going to be a transformation. But ultimately, it's not about the resurrected body, it's not about the transformed world, but it's about the resurrected Jesus. That our eternal life the glorious reason, the glorious promise, the glorious hope is that we will be in the presence of the resurrected Jesus. Look with me in Revelation chapter 20. Look at the whole focus in verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. We will be in the complete presence of God. We will walk alongside the resurrected Jesus who's King. You might be pulling weeds in a garden with Jesus. And you might be thinking to yourself, what? We're working. We're caring for this brand new creation together. Right alongside the resurrected Jesus. The presence of Christ. And it's so much more than the absence of evil. Because the absence of evil is a byproduct. The absence of evil is a byproduct. Why? Because there's the presence of God. The presence of the risen Christ 
necessitates that there's the absence of evil. Therefore, our greatest hope is not the absence of evil, but is the presence of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus the Christ. The reason that we may not long for heaven at all is because we don't long for God Himself. In heaven, will we know people? Yes, I believe so. I I think that's a teaching we can get from being back in a physical universe. In heaven, will we be back in the presence of loved ones? Yes. In heaven, we'll be working and sleeping, singing, doing the things that God created us to do. But more than all of that, in heaven, eternal heaven, we will be in the presence of the resurrected Jesus in a transformed world with a resurrected body. It's a glorious hope. It's a glorious picture. So what does it mean for today? How should that picture affect what happens today? Today there's really one practical application today. If we live this eternal truth, if we put into practice that we believe that there is a future resurrected body in a transformed world in the presence of a resurrected Jesus, our practical application today is this. We need to maintain perspective. What I mean by that is this. We need to understand the things that are important and the things that are unimportant. If we have this as our hope, if we truly have this eternal perspective, it changes everything about the temporary. And everything depends on perspective, right? Last week we were driving home from the Minnesota Twins game. Yes, mediocre sports fan. And I was there with Yankee fans. Make it all the worst thing. So we were driving home from the Twins game and as we look off to the side of the interstate, there's this barn. This barn's got a roof and it's got stripes and stars on it. And the people that I was traveling with were looking at the barn and they're saying, well, that doesn't make sense. The stars and the stripes are backwards and there's not enough stars and there's not enough stripes. Well, what perspective were we looking from? The ground at a side angle. The whole point is what? Look at it from the perspective of a plane. And when you fly over, what do you see? A flag. But if you look at it from the wrong perspective, everything looks out of whack. Everything depends upon your perspective. And the time to get a proper perspective is not in the middle of a battle. How many of you have ever picked sweet corn before? When you pick sweet corn, you don't just walk in and kind of start meandering around. What do you do before you walk into a cornfield? You get a little bit of picture of where you're at and where you're going. You walk into a cornfield without perspective. Can you get perspective in the middle of the cornfield? Not at all. You can wander for a really long time because if you don't go in with perspective, the time to get perspective is not in the middle of the battle. The time to get perspective is right now because there's going to be a battle coming or you're just leaving a battle or you might be right in the middle of it. But you've got to get perspective right now and maintain it so you have it when you go into the difficult times. If we're going to live this truth, we're going to have perspective. We're going to recognize that what we see is not all we get because there's a greater transformation coming. You see, there's applications for this all the time. Christians should actually be the ones that get least excited about stuff. Christians should be the least excited about stuff. But think for a moment about usually what gets your heart boiling. Usually what gets our heart boiling is something that doesn't matter. Oh, it hasn't rained for days. My lawn looks horrible. Who cares? Literally, 
Who cares? I mean, think of it. You get stressed out coming home from a vacation. Oh, I haven't mowed for three days. I've got to get home. I've got to mow right now. You're concerned about what? Grass! Here today and gone tomorrow. What to think about the church? What do we get most excited about? Well, should we have carpet in the whole sanctuary or should we just have carpet down the aisles? <laughs> okay. The carpet's going to be here for what? 30 years? I don't know how long carpet lasts. 30 years if you're lucky. At least 30 years before a new group of men and women come in with a different personality. Think about it for a second. What gets us most excited most of the time is the very thing that lasts but a moment. Christians should actually get excited very little because we get excited about very little. And the only thing we get excited about is that which has eternal consequences. So we're passionate about people. We're passionate when there's injustice to people. We're passionate when innocent life is taken away. We're passionate when there's an opportunity to take the message of Jesus to people that have never heard it. Why? Because eternity is at stake. We're passionate about things that matter. What's the greatest turnoff to non-church people? At least one of them is this. When Christians get excited about stuff that doesn't matter. Right? When Christians argue about stuff that doesn't matter at all, who cares? What should we be arguing about? How can we make the greatest impact for eternity? Forgetting the temporary and having our minds on eternity. Now, it's not that simple. I realize that. But if we all came to the table with that perspective, it would lower the emotion in the room just a little bit. If the question before us is this, how can what we're making a decision about this temporary thing bring about the most eternal impact? Wouldn't that change the conversation a great deal? If we said, how can this decision about this temporary thing make the most eternal impact? be a game changer. It'd be a game changer for a church, but this new perspective is a game changer for an individual because we've got an eternal perspective, not a temporary perspective because our hope is a resurrected body in a transformed world with a resurrected Jesus. This morning, when the final word comes, not from your professor, not from your parent, but when the final word comes from God, when life is no more, there's only one thing that matters. Look with me at Revelation chapter 21, verse 7. There's only one thing that matters when the final word is spoken. Revelation 21, verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The only thing that matters when the final word is spoken is this. Are you a conqueror? Are you a champion? In Revelation, this word conqueror appears multiple times. The whole focus is this. Those who are conquerors are those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 John chapter 5, it tells us that those who have faith in Jesus Christ will overcome the world just like Jesus Christ did. Those who are conquerors are those who are united by faith to Jesus Christ. Today, you and I can be conquerors. Today, you and I can face the final word because we can be conquerors through faith in Jesus Christ. 
and through faith in Jesus Christ, we are conquerors. We are champions who have a resurrected body in a transformed world alongside a resurrected Jesus Christ. Today is the day to say and to sing, I will rise. I will rise because I am a conqueror through Jesus Christ, my Lord and my Savior. Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you for the promise of the resurrection. Thank you for conquering death on our behalf. And thank you for making us conquerors. God, this morning I pray for any individual here who's struggling with perspective. God, I ask that you would capture their heart this morning. God, I ask that you would capture their mind this morning. Give them a picture of eternity. And we pray this morning, O Lord, that the hope of the resurrection, the hope of transformation, would keep all of us in peace and keep all of us in a continual state of joy. God, thank you for your promises. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.